The Guardian. The Guardian has partnered with audible.co.uk to offer listeners a free audiobook when you sign up for a one-month, no-commitment trial of the Audible service. Audible has over 50,000 audiobook titles available to download. Go to guardian.co.uk slash audible for further details. Hello, this is the Business Podcast. I'm Katie Allen. As the West faces another austerity Christmas, we speak to an economist who may have the answer to seasonal overspending. Stop buying presents. Good night, sir. And a merry Christmas. Bah, Plus, in these final days of 2011, we look back on a tumultuous year in business and economics with our expert writers, Larry Elliott and Simon Goodley. Obviously, the big story has been the Eurozone, where um, the crisis just started on the periphery has started to sort of burrow its way towards the core and that's that's really been the story of the year this is the business from the guardian just hear beijing jing jingling kris kring kringling too the mall will call a cordon with all santa's important for you on Saturday night, Santa sets about his annual night shift, his sleigh laden with iPads, Lego and this year's must-have toy, Doggy Doo, the defecating plastic dachshund. As Santa goes about his business, it might occur to him that just like every year, come January, those gifts will be collecting dust. It's a thought that the economist Joe Waldfogel has developed in his work on the economics of Christmas. What we may like to think of as a festival of generosity and goodwill to all mankind appears to Professor Waldfogel, author of Scroogeonomics, as an orgy of waste and a destruction of value. For this festive edition of the podcast, he joins us on the line now. Professor Waldfogel, the subtitle of your book is Why You Shouldn't Buy Christmas Presents. So why not? Well, the problem with presents, I mean, as as wonderful as they are in intent, the problem is that uh, they usually miss the mark. You know, normally I'll only spend 100 pounds on an item if it's worth at least 100 pounds to me. So normally if we see 100 pounds in spending, we know that it's produced at least 100 pounds worth of satisfaction for someone. With gift giving, we have someone other than the ultimate consumer making the choice. They can go out with great intentions and spend 100 pounds, but not knowing what the recipient actually wants, they might buy something that's worth, well, as little as nothing to the recipient. And so the 100 pounds worth of spending isn't guaranteed to produce 100 pounds worth of satisfaction. And in fact, over the years, I've done a lot of research on this, and I find that people get about 20% less satisfaction per pound spent uh, on items that are gifts compared to items that they've purchased for themselves. So that is why gift-giving destroys value. It's a slightly awkward thing to research, isn't it? Dare I ask whether you asked family members or you, you looked at the own gifts you've been given? How, how did you go about researching this? Well, the, the, uh, the inspiration was, uh, I guess, from introspection, but I went about researching it by, uh, I guess, surveying captive audiences of students over the years, giving them surveys, asking them about items they had received as gifts and items they purchased for themselves, and in particular, asking them, well, think about the item, put aside the sentimental value, but just as an item, what would you have been willing to pay for it? And how does that compare with what you think the, the giver paid? So that was really how I went about uh, getting the numbers. 
Obviously, this is the week when lots of people will be doing their last minute Christmas shopping. Do you have any advice then on a more efficient way of giving presents? I mean, if I were to ask you what you wanted for Christmas, that might get around the problem. But do I take away some of the surprise value? How do I do it? Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, some people find this business of of asking that you know takes the sport out of it and so i'm not sure that that's the solution although it is this time of year when i see just really literally panicked shoppers who are operating under some mandate that they have to purchase something they don't know what to buy these are really the people who are most at risk of buying something that'll be utterly useless to the recipient so my heart goes out that's not a solution but it is a an expression of sympathy i mean i think if you're in the situation where you have to buy something and have no idea what to purchase it's probably not such an intimate relationship that getting some clues about what the recipient might want uh, would be awkward. So, you know, ask their friends. Uh, You know, in the U.S., it's become enormously popular to give gift cards or gift vouchers as opposed to particular gifts. Does that work well? Does that fit with your theory? Well, it does work well in a couple of senses. First of all, it gives the ultimate choice about what to get to the recipient as opposed to the the, the gift buyer. And so it does get around the problem of buying the the wrong thing, by and large. The other thing it does that's, that's really kind of surprising is that it seems to avoid the awkwardness of giving cash. You know, we can't give cash in most social situations. That just seems too awkward and almost pointless. And so it's tacky and and strange. Mm -hmm. And yet gift cards avoid that problem or gift vouchers. I mean, recipients rate them routinely as their most desired gifts, and and givers seem to like giving them. So it's not so much that I endorse them as that I just observe that, well, they seem to be a big solution to the problem. But they too have a slight downside, don't they? I think you say in your book that 10% of them are left unspent. Is that right? That is a problem. So it's uh, in one sense, it's not a problem. In one sort of dry uh, technical sense, it's, it's not value destroyed. It's just value transferred from the giver to the retailer. But I think, you know, as givers, we'd like to know that our recipients are getting the value. So I do advocate at the book, uh, wouldn't it be nice if retailers issued gift cards where the unspent balances went straight to charity after, say, 12 or, or 24 months? Nobody's taken me up on this just yet, but uh, I'm, 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 uh, I'm optimistic. And charity is something else you mentioned in the book. You, 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 know, you highly recommend the idea of giving on behalf of somebody. Is that right? Well, I do. I mean, again, when the recipient is a grown-up who's not going to cry if there isn't something to open, you know, we all know that we're under these obligations to give to each other, and it's, it's almost as awkward for the recipient as it is for the giver. I personally would rather have, in one of these situations, a giver say, you know, I, I gave $10 to a worthwhile charity in your name. That, that saves us both the, the awkwardness and embarrassment of having to, to buy things we don't like and pretend that we like them. And that's a growing trend. I mean, and one trend we've seen in the UK, and it's something I started to dabble in myself this year, is, is homemade gifts are growing in popularity. Now, they don't have a set monetary value. You know, if I bake something for a friend, it's difficult to put a value on that. How do these fare in, in, your, in your economics of Christmas? Well, you know, I've never studied them, uh, so I don't really know. But here's what I can say. I mean, if your time is valuable, so the time you spent making these cookies that does have value. And so it's, even though you didn't spend money on it, you did, you know, use up something of value. And so it is susceptible to the same kind of problem. If your friend doesn't happen to like those cookies, you know, you've, you've used hours you could have done something else with. That said, I mean, I think it's probably a pretty uh, appreciated, heartfelt gesture. And as long as you enjoy baking, if it's cookies in question, mm-hmm. then it's not so costly. It's Rocky Road, yes. <laughs> it's not too hard to do, and it usually goes down well because it's chocolate. I mean, but, but the problem with this is there's a danger, isn't there, of being a bit overly curmudgeonly, and it is a festive time of year, and is it not the thought that counts and that's something that's difficult to put a price on? 
Well, I think there is something to that. I mean, so we do like to give gifts. We like to receive them. But the challenge is, is that we, we tend to, to allocate to ourselves a certain amount that we have to spend, which I think almost guarantees that we're going to fail. Uh, I think that a lot of the thought that counts can be accomplished without a mandate to go out and spend some big chunk of money. So whether it's a homemade gift or just a, a gesture or something, something small, consumable, and therefore not a permanent waste, maybe we can discharge our obligation without so much material consumption. Is there anything you'd advise people to particularly avoid? You know, should we be avoiding buying each other scarves and hats, of which there seem to be piles every Christmas? You know, the problem is that uh, one person's treasure is another person's trash. I mean, the whole kind of problem, the whole issue in economics with people, you know, everyone has his own or her own preferences, and when we let them go off and make their own choices, it results in happiness. The problem here, again, is not that there are particular items that are bad, but rather that uh, when someone else does the choosing, things that are perfectly good end up in the wrong hands and don't produce much satisfaction. So it's not, you know, that there's not any particular type of gift or particular type of giver who's bad. It's really just the process of allocating when somebody other than you makes the choice. And finally, I must ask you this. Do you follow your own advice? What's, what's Christmas like in your house? Uh, carefully researched. I have teenage <laughs> daughters, uh, and they're not shy about dropping hints. So if I listen, then I can get pretty good ideas. So teenagers are perhaps the easiest to buy for, aren't they? Because they're pretty well, clear they're, about what they want. They're easy in the sense that they express their wishes. But they're, I think they're quite difficult in the sense that if you don't know what they want, you really can miss <laughs> the mark badly. Super. Well, Professor Waldfogel, thank you very much for joining us. And you can buy Scroogeonomics in all good bookshops for the economics buff in your lives, or better still, give them the cash equivalent. This is The Business from The Guardian. Larry Elliott, you're the Guardian's economics expert, and we've been talking about Scroogeonomics, the idea that gift-giving actually destroys value. Is that a concept that works for you? It doesn't really. I think it's sort of overstating what economics can tell us, really, because an awful lot of present-giving at Christmas is about the value you get out of seeing someone else accept a present or, or, or you giving it. So quite a lot of the value is, is, in, is in the present-giving and the present-accepting and feeling that someone else loves you enough to give you a present or likes you enough to give you a present. So I'm not sure you can really quantify it in that sort of economic sort of way. And I think in some ways it's sort of why economics has got a bit of a bad name because it tries to extend itself beyond what it can really tell us. Simon Goodley is the business expert on our panel. Retailers will obviously be hoping that people take Larry's side in this and they won't be following the advice in the book. They've had a torrid year, haven't they? Oh, they have had an, um, an absolutely awful year as a, as a sector. Um, and I have to say, I sort of do agree with Larry on Scroogeonomics. It seems a very bad business practice to produce a book that's clearly a stocking filler and then say it's uh, Christmas time not to put it in there. But um, they, I, I think that uh, going into Christmas that uh, the, the consumer is depressed, but they will actually do everything they can to make sure that they, they and their families have a good Christmas. And I think we've seen a bit of that in terms of the statistics on the, the debt levels that, uh, that families and households are taking on. So in other on. words, people are borrowing to buy the presents They're and borrowing, get themselves through Christmas? Yeah, borrowing for, for Christmas to buy not really sort of uh, glamorous gifts or anything, but uh, the, the, the food they need and the, the presents, the, the toys, that kind of thing. And I think uh, come January, we might see a, a bit of a kickback from that. 2011 hasn't just been tough for the high street, has it? We've had businesses, banks and governments all starting the year trying to manage expectations and before long they were managing them down even further. Simon, what stood out for you as you look back over this year? 
Well, I mean, there's a few themes. I mean, the overriding theme is obviously the, the economy and, and the Eurozone, which I'm sure Larry will talk about later. But then uh, there's sort of themes within uh, business that since then, I mean, the, the ongoing woes of the, of the banks, which are obviously related, and the financial condition of those banks and their share prices uh, collapsing. Also, there's sort of themes where you've sort of seen the uh, the reputations of various business leaders collapse, whether they're through, um, through scandals, so... Big hedge fund managers like Raj Rajaratnam, a billionaire hedge fund manager who uh, was convicted of insider trading in in uh, in the U.S. on Wall Street, to to household names like the big scandal in Japan on on Olympus, and it's kind of like a, during a financial crisis and recessions, you see a lot of these uh, scandals come out and uh, I think what Galbraith used to call the, the bezel part of, uh, of, of embezzle and uh, there's been a lot of this from uh, uh, that's been exposed throughout the, throughout the year. But it is Christmas so give us some reasons to be cheerful. Is there anybody who's bucked the trend this year? Any businesses or particular sectors that have stood out for you? Uh, yeah there's a, there's a couple I mean there hasn't been that many that have bucked the trend but um, in technology, there's been um, been some success stories in terms of uh, British-created uh, uh, technology companies, particularly out of Cambridge, that have done very well. So Autonomy was uh, bought for $10 billion by uh, HP uh, earlier on in the year. And the biggest riser in the FTSE is a company called Arm, which makes the chips for iPods and iPads, which is going great guns to the point where people are actually thinking that the share price has maybe gone a bit too far. There's been so much good news in there. So there are good stories but um, uh, over two-thirds of the FTSE is down on the year. And Larry Elliott, um, you're not necessarily known for your optimism around the economic situation at the moment. That's completely unfair. Most (laughs) cheerful of chaps. Um, If you look back over the year, can you think of any reasons to be cheerful on the economics front? Anything we've made? Well, obviously it hasn't been a vintage year for the economy. We started off with people talking about when the first base rate rise, bank rate rise would be in the UK and talking about when the Fed would tighten policy. So we started the year people thinking that the recovery was well set and was going to embed itself and that we would start to get back to more normal monetary and fiscal conditions. That really hasn't worked, um, that theory. And as the year's worn on, growth has obviously come off the boil, unemployment's gone up, and you know the, the, the date of the first increase in interest rates has been pushed back by quite a long way. And uh, it's not just been in the UK. It's been a pretty general thing across the across the world. China's still growing very fast, but not as fast as it was. India's got inflation problems. The US is is, is actually probably the the one, the one part of the world where there has been some more encouraging news over the over the most recent months, where the unemployment started to come down and the economy looks like it's a bit stronger. But obviously, the big story has been the eurozone, where. Um, the crisis that just started on the periphery has started to sort of burrow its way towards the core, and that's that's really been the sto- story of the year, and will rumble on into two thousand and twelve. And I suppose there aren't that many there aren't that many good pieces of news apart from the fact if you think that you know lower levels of growth actually mean less pressure on the on the ecosphere on the environment. I suppose there's what there's some comfort in the fact that you know we're putting less pressure on the planet for temporarily at least, but you know the lower levels of consumption and growth. But it does come at a very high cost in terms of higher unemployment and increased poverty levels so there's not it hasn't it has not been a it has not been a great year for the global economy one thing simon we've heard of a lot about in the uk is um businesses complaining that without credit they really can't grow and create those jobs that that larry was talking about you know this high unemployment we've got in many countries and this was supposed to be the year that the government's project merlin got banks lending again has it worked well it depends on uh, who you believe um the official figures say that um 
uh, everything is on track. I think uh, the, the banks are supposed to have uh, the capacity and the willingness to, to lend, I think it's $190 billion by the, the year end. Um, and uh, so far, I think, or the last figures, was about 158 of that lent, and so therefore we're pretty well on track. However, if you sort of uh, look at other figures, then uh, it doesn't look nearly as rosy. So net lending in all of that is actually down. And the anecdotal evidence, uh, especially from small business and manufacturers, is that it's increasingly difficult for, for small companies in particular to get loans out of, out of high street banks. I think the real key there is would the government have introduced credit easing in the autumn statement, which it did as a direct way of trying to get credit through to small and medium-sized businesses if Project Merlin was working. And the fact that it had to do that suggests to me that it knows that Project Merlin really isn't delivering the goods. And there's a, there's a, there's a quite a, a widely held uh, view that uh, actually the banks, not only do they not really want to do this, they actually haven't got the, uh, the ability to do it anymore. They've forgotten how to lend to small businesses. They haven't got the people who, who can do it or the people uh, with the confidence to do it anymore because it's, it's not the easiest thing in the world just to be able to, to lend to businesses and know if you're going to make any money. The banks say, of course, that some of it is people don't want to borrow and I think there's there is some truth in that I think that you know animal spirits of business are pretty low and that most businesses are operating with levels of capital that they're relatively happy with they can they can meet most of their demand out of their existing capital stock and they don't really feel the need to invest much more money or, or reluctant to do so when the economic climate is so uncertain and I think you know, to an extent the, the banks got a point there it's not just a supply problem it's also a demand problem businesses are sort of hunkering down I suppose and yeah, and, and medium-sized businesses and upwards have actually got a lot of uh, a lot of cash on their balance sheets now. But they're not using it really, are they? Well, they 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 they're holding on to it. Um, but they're not necessarily the companies that uh, that Merlin was chiefly designed to to help anyway. Because I mean, they have other other ways of actually raising funds. I mean, the the ones that are really suffering are the the very small companies in this is country, which uh, basically the bank loan is the only way they've got of raising funds, and uh, that avenue is increasingly. Uh, 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 it's increasingly more difficult for them to get funds in that way. Larry, when we look back over this year, there's been a lot of talk about the recovery being the slowest since the Great Depression. The Great Depression gets brought up a lot. And obviously that was a period that famously made the name and the reputation of John Maynard Keynes. If you look back over this crisis, has it unearthed any new great thinkers? Uh, no, I, th- I think that's one of the problems. Actually, there hasn't been any great um, you know, philosopher king to come along in the way that Keynes did in the 1930s. I, mean, was, I suppose Nouriel Roubini was one of the people who prophesied what was going to happen quite early on. He saw the problems happening in the debt market, but I wouldn't say that Roubini is necessarily a great thinker in the way that Keynes was. I mean, we've sort of gone back to some economists of the past um, Minsky is one who you know his theory of of debt that's been become very fashionable but there's been no really big name emerged so far I don't think to say well this is where we are this is why we're here and this is where we this is how we get out of it and I think that's been one of the problems I think which is that you know as we've as this crisis has, has gone on we've been looking around for some answers and haven't been able to find any. And obviously, as we look into 2012, is that a feeling that will continue? I mean, we this year we've heard about all sorts of Eurozone summits. You've talked about the Eurozone and, and where we go next. Do you expect any solution in the next six months? No, I don't. I think that the whole Eurozone crisis has been appallingly 
mishandled from start to finish. Again, lack of experts. Lack of experts, lack of political will, just a general sense that you can defer problems until a bit later, the whole sort of Mr. McCorber approach to political economy, that something will turn up if you wait for long enough. And they've just allowed the crisis to build and build and build. And I, I I don't have any great confidence in the ability of the European leaders to solve this without there being a considerable amount of pain in the European economy. I think the best that you can hope for is that something happens in the first six months and we get away with a relatively mild recession in the eurozone but it, there's going to be a recession of some sort but the you know the doomsday scenario is some sort of breakup of the eurozone mishandled very messy which leads to a much deeper recession with consequences not just for the eurozone obviously but for the rest of the global economy including britain so i mean you have to hope that something is going to be done that's why the ims really getting on on Europe Europe's case. It's why the Americans are, are on their case virtually the whole time, because everybody realises just what the consequence of this could be. Um, but thus far, there's no, I don't think there's any great sense of confidence that they're on top of this. So gloomy outlook in the Eurozone. Um, if we come back to the UK and, and to the high street, Simon, January, are we going to see this magical sales boost that we usually see? Is 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 that something in store for the retailers at least? Well, I mean, it potentially could be, but I just can't see it. I mean, I think that uh, I think the, the, the data showing so far that people are borrowing and uh, to, to have their Christmas and they're not particularly spending it on uh, particularly glamorous things suggests that things uh, are extremely tight within households. I think when it comes to January, it'll be very miserable. That doesn't mean there won't be some success stories on the high street. There always are, but it will become increasingly hard work and, and the ones that are successful will have to work increasingly hard to to actually make any money. I think the one bit of hope for the high street in 2012 is that inflation should come down pretty sharply. That's one piece of news which is pretty much baked in the cake because VAT went up last January, won't go up again. Oil prices have gone up very sharply this year, probably won't go up again. So during the course of the year, inflation is going to come down, I think, quite fast. And that will take some of the pressure off people's real incomes. Because at the moment, 2011, it's been a really, really grim year for people because prices have been going up by about 5% a year. Wages have been going up at 2% a year. You know, you don't need to be Mr. McCorpor to know that spells misery for quite a lot of people. That gap between what people are earning and what they're paying is actually quite substantial by in historic terms. And it will that, that gap will narrow in 2012 and that should take some of the pressure off and that, that probably helpful to the high street in a way. Well, a slightly optimistic note then to leave it on. And I'm afraid that's all we've got time for this week and indeed this year. My thanks to Larry Elliott and Simon Goodley. The producer was Phil Maynard. I'm Katie Allen. Thanks for listening. Have a Merry Christmas and we'll leave you with one of our favourite economics tracks of the year from Ry Cooder. Said the bankers all are leaving. You better come round and see. It's starting revelation. They rob the nation blind. They're all down at the station. No banker left behind. No banker, no banker, no banker could I find. They were all down at the station. No banker left behind. The Guardian has partnered with audible.co.uk to offer listeners a free audiobook when you sign up for a one-month, no-commitment trial of the Audible service. Audible has over 50,000 audiobook titles available to download. Go to guardian.co.uk audible for further details. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.